Hey there, fellow OT practitioner, and welcome back to the OT Schoolhouse podcast, your place for practical school-based occupational therapy tips, research, and professional development. I'm your host, Jason Davies, and today we have a fantastic episode about how school-based OT practitioners can support students with low vision. To help me out with that, joining me today is the incredibly knowledgeable Kelsey Cornells, an occupational therapist with a background in optometry and extensive experience working with students with visual impairments, particularly at a school for the blind and visually impaired. Together, Kelsey and I hope to help you understand the role of occupational therapy practitioners in supporting students with visual impairments and their specific needs, including the use of assistive technology and universal design for learning. And before we get started, I also want to let you in on one little secret. Kelsey recently presented a full training on supporting the sensory needs of students with visual impairments inside our OT Schoolhouse Collaborative community. So if you enjoy this episode, which I'm sure you will, be sure to check out her course inside the collaborative at otschoolhouse.com slash collab. We hope to see you there. And with that, I hope you enjoy this enlightening conversation with Kelsey Kronaus as we learn and grow together as a community of therapists. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast, your source for school-based occupational therapy tips, interviews, and professional development. Now, to get the conversation started, here is your host, Jason Davies. Class is officially in session. Kelsey, welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. It is such a pleasure to have you here today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Excited to be joining on the OT yeah. Schoolhouse podcast. Yeah, you know, we, we've done a lot together over the years. It seems like I've known you for so long. You've been part of the OT Schoolhouse Collaborative a little bit, helping out over there with presenting about visual impairments. And I'm excited to bring you on today to, again, talk about visual impairments and really sharing the role that OT practitioners can can partake in supporting students with visual impairments. It's going to be a good time, I think. It is. I'm excited to kind of dive in and talk more about visual impairments and what we what our role is as school-based OTs. Absolutely. So, you know, let's kind of start off with a little bit about your background and how you kind of fell into the world of working in the VI space. I did. Yeah. So, um my OT journey was definitely that it was a journey. I did not start out pursuing occupational therapy. Um I actually was pursuing a career as an optometrist and did my undergrad um, with a bachelor's in pre-optometry, was going to do pediatrics and vision therapy. And like that was that was the plan. So um went to grad school to be an optometrist and quickly realized like, oh, this just isn't the right fit for me. Like it wasn't everything that I was hoping for. So kind of took a pause on that and was figuring out like what am I going to do next? Like what what does this look like? Because yeah. There was really only plan A and not plan B. <laughs> so it happened to be at the time that I had a family member who was going through vestibular therapy. And she called me up and she was like, you know what? She's like, I think this could be like a really good combination of skills. Like I'm working with an OT. We're doing vestibular therapy. Like here's all the vision pieces. You know, why don't you kind of look into this some more? It's like, okay, like, let's do that. So did some shadowing, talked to and worked with some really great OTs in the vestibular therapy world. 
And I was like, all right, like OT school, like that's the new, Mm -hmm. that's the new goal. Like, let's see where we go from there. So, um, was very fortunate to get into OT, learn more about it. Mm -hmm. And I went to the university of Indianapolis where I got my master's in occupational therapy and really the, the drive was like, okay, I'm going to connect my vision background with occupational therapy. Like, I don't know how that's going to happen, but <laughs> like, I know that's, that's my passion. And so after school, you know, you kind of start out, get your first job, get, you know, used to everything. And after about a year of working, um, I got in contact with a company that was looking to place an OT at the school for the blind in Wisconsin, which is where I'm at. And they were like, you know, we think this would be a good fit. Like you've got this vision background. And I always knew as an OT, I either wanted to go school-based or PEDS-based. And then to have um, the school for the blind opportunity, I was like, well, this kind of merges everything together for me. And that was, so it just kind of all happened. I wasn't planning on it. It was just (laughs) kind of how that worked. And so I got into the school for the blind and just really started to like hone my skills as an OT, working with students with visual impairments and also learning the school-based side of OT. Yeah. Simultaneously. Yeah. That's, that's a unique experience because I mean, to be fair, there's just not a lot of school for the blinds out there. I mean, states, if you're in a smaller state, you might have one. And if you're in a larger state, they might have them, but they're very spread out. And right. it's not like every city has one like they do have schools. No. So. And and typically it's like, you know, if you're lucky to have a school for the blind in your state, it's going to be, you know, usually located near your capital or, you know, you're going to be serving students throughout the whole state you aren't going to have schools in multiple locations within a state. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So did you, were you saying that you actually started with a fieldwork placement in this and then it turned into a job or did you just get that as your first job out of OT school? I got it as my second job oh, okay. out of OT school. So the first job I was working with a company doing assisted living and memory care support. And kind of starting there just as that first grad experience. And then after a year working there, this position at the blind school became available and they were reaching out and trying to find qualified applicants. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Because you already had that background with autometry a little bit and it just kind of worked out. Awesome. Yeah. I'm sure they appreciated that background when when you came in for your interview. Like, not only is she an OT, but she's got some some background in optometry that that really works out. So, very cool. All right. Well, as you dove into that job, you know, I want to get into the VI. I really do. But I kind of want to ask you, as you were diving into that very first job as in the school for for the blind, kind of what was that first experience like? Was it very shocking to you? Was it exactly what you expected? What was it like going into that position? Yeah, I would say I definitely had a thought of what it could be. And then I quickly realized I have a lot to learn. I have a lot to kind of just experience and wrap my head around. Because initially, you know, I was kind of told like, yeah, students with a visual impairment. Um, I'm thinking, okay, low vision, blindness. The thing that we 
that I hadn't considered was just the additional diagnoses or the additional complexities that can go with that for some Mm -hmm. students. So, you know, not only are they blind and visually impaired, but there might also be a diagnosis of cerebral palsy, or they might have a neurodivergent diagnosis. They might also be, you know, minimal communication skills. And so when you start to look at, you know, how are you bringing information into your body? Well, you might have decreased vision, but then you might also have decreased communication skills and decreased hearing and just how all of those play into the whole student. And so that part, I don't think I was prepared for just the complexities that you work with for some students. So I had to learn quickly, but thankfully I had some great support and, you know, great team members that I worked with to help me learn this new role. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I know we're going to dive in as we go a little bit further into some of those other attributes that you Mm -hmm. saw with these students that were common with some of your students with visual impairments. But let's take a kind of a a quick step back, I guess, and, and define a little bit what a visual impairment is as it relates to schools. Um, As everyone I think out there knows, like we're not diagnosing, the school psychologist is not diagnosing. um, Often there's not an optometrist or an ophthalmologist on campus that's diagnosing. That's happening outside. But when it comes to education and the schools, what does it mean when a school identifies a student as having a visual impairment? Yeah, absolutely. So IDEA will define a visual impairment It's an impairment in vision that even with correction adversely affects the child's educational performance. And we want to make sure that we're including both partial sight and blindness. So that's why it's important to know, like, is the student considered low vision or completely blind? And so that's where that visual impairment eligibility criteria comes into play. Gotcha. And then I'm assuming, but I mean, you worked in a school for a blind. So mm-hmm. a student was already being, uh, they already had an IEP Correct. that identified them as having visual impairment. Mm-hmm. However, I do want to ask you this question for those who aren't working in a school for a blind. How might a school go about identifying a student with visual with a visual impairment? Is it something that an OT is often part of? Is there someone's typically specific on the IEP team that might do that? Or what have you experienced? Yeah. So in my experience, um, you know, if you're wanting to consider a visual impairment dike or eligibility criteria, there is a team that's going to get together to help determine that criteria. So typically the members of that team are going to include a teacher of the visually impaired and they will perform the functional vision evaluation. They're going to look at medical records. They're going to get information from that optometrist or ophthalmologist. And they're really going to look at the educational needs and what's impacting that student. In addition, there's also going to be an orientation and mobility specialist on the team, and they need to evaluate and determine if there's going to be any orientation and mobility needs either in the home, in the school, or community environments. So a child can meet criteria for visual impairment, but not necessarily need the orientation and mobility component. So not every student is going 
to be a white cane user, mm-hmm. which is typically where orientation and mobility specialists are going to work with a student. Some students might be in a wheelchair and might, you know, still meet that eligibility criteria for a visual impairment. But as a part of that team, you want to get that full comprehensive evaluation. And then oftentimes, depending on the size of the team and what the team is considering, then they might bring in, you know, occupational therapy, physical therapy to evaluate any additional concerns. But that initial team is really looking at, you know, what are the students' visual like visual skills, where do they fall? And then how is that impacting their educational needs? Gotcha. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that would typically happen at the local LEA, the local school district, right? Yeah. So your local district within your state is going to do that initial evaluation. Oftentimes, if a school team needs additional support, they can contact the state's outreach team, which is often associated with your schools for the blind, schools for the deaf. And then those team members can also help facilitate those services. Because it's really about making sure the student has access to services to be as independent as possible. Yeah. And, you know, just like other types of services and other types of eligibilities, you know, schools don't have all the resources to support all the students. And that's where the school for the blind really comes into play. Kind of going down that route then, would it be, I guess that team could make that initial referral to potentially refer that student to the school for, for the blind. However, it might occur later, potentially Mm -hmm. they might try out the local LEA first and then determine if they need to move on to a school for the blind. But I kind of want to understand that, process just a little bit that you probably experienced from being at the school for the blind like what does that referral process look like when a school when a student is being referred to a school for a blind from an LE from a their local LEA I guess yeah correct um so oftentimes you know a student will be in their what I refer to as their home district right they've started out in their home district they've gotten services and then usually it seems to be like around middle school is when you can see that a student might need additional supports Mm -hmm. or some really individualized opportunities and learning that is really well provided at a school for the blind. And so typically what would happen is families would come, they would tour, you know, they've started those conversations. Maybe those LEAs have connected a family with their state school for the blind. And then if a family would like to do, we typically called it a trial placement, like come, you know, spend an an amount of time in the school setting. And what's unique is you have to remember, it's also typically a residential setting. So students are coming from all over the state. So you also want to make sure like they're comfortable being away from home, that they're, you know, able to support themselves with assistance where needed. And so typically students would do a trial placement And then the team at the blind school would come together, kind of do like just not an evaluation, but just kind of assess the skills. Like, where's the student at? You know, here's what's working well for them in this environment. Here's what, you know, some additional supports or accommodations that we can recommend. And then really based on 
like both schools coming together. So the local LEA team comes together, the school for the blind comes together, and just with the families and the student have that conversation about, you know, what do we think is the best placement, you know, for a student and where can they get the services and supports that they need to continue on academically. So most of the students I worked with, um, we typically see them like middle school through high school. But that's not to say there isn't support for, you know, your younger students as well. Those three-year-olds, four-year-olds, and five-year-olds. Yeah. And, you know, LEAs, local districts, it's not like they want to send out students to the school for a blind. I mean, they, they want to help the student and they want to try and keep the student in the least restrictive environment, which is that home school and, and give them the support that they, that they need there. Um, And so, yeah, I can imagine, you know, trying to get through elementary school and maybe they're working on teaching the student Braille with a vision teacher, working on orientation mobility. But at some point for some students, it just becomes maybe a little too much and they need that extra support. Yes. And then what I know from a lot of my students and having spoken with them, like there's a sense of community there. They come and they are with other students who have had similar experiences, similar opportunities as them. And they're like, okay, I didn't have this in my, you know, I didn't have this community or this network. And I will say with social media, there is a much larger community now. Yeah. And, you know, that's been beneficial for some students, but there's just this sense of like, I'm with other students who understand what I do on a daily basis and not have to explain it or not have to, you know, like, why do you need this support? And why, why do you, you know, do this or this? And so I will say like those middle school students are like, it's really great to, to have that community. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. It's so interesting when you think about like the least restrictive environment and how just things have evolved over years. And you think about trying to keep students with their typically developing peers as IDA Mm -hmm. wants us to do. But then there is that sense of community when students do have that alternative type of placement where they can go be with like-minded, like-abled peers Mm -hmm. that have shared those experiences. Um, And it's hard to find that that happy medium, right? Like where do we give them that opportunity to experience both experiences with peers, typically, Mm -hmm. typically developing peers, as well as their peers that have similar lives that they have. So that's hard. Yeah. And then I, you know, I'm sure for families, it's a huge decision to say, okay, I'm going to send my son or daughter to a residential setting five days out of seven And, you know, also consider transportation because we had students that would come on charter buses. Some would fly depending on the distance. And so, like, it's a big, you know, I'm sure it's a big decision for a lot of families and students. Yeah. Yeah. I I would not want to have to go through that. And if I ever do, like. It, it will be yep. such a big decision. And it's not just for schools for the blind, too, like no. any residential placement. Correct. Right? Yeah. All right. Well, let's continue on. Earlier, you mentioned some secondary potential diagnoses or um, other conditions that students mm-hmm. may have in addition to the low vision. Did you see themes? Were there common themes, whether it be in research or just in practice, that you have um, started to see while working with students with visual impairments? What did you see on their IEPs, but also just while working with them? 
Yeah. So, I mean, typically on an IEP for a student to be having an eligibility criteria, you're going to see somewhere along the lines that visual impairment um, diagnosis or criteria. Mm -hmm. Um, But in addition to that, I mean, there are students that have a medical diagnosis, whether that's cerebral palsy, they're also might have that um, autism diagnosis or eligibility criteria in there as well. And then you can also have students with the visual impairment and hard of hearing. So so sometimes you have like that dual deaf and hard of hearing with a visual impairment as well. And so it's really unique. Like, you know, every student is going to be needing some very specific adaptations or requirements. Uh And so it just takes like, you really just have to kind of do your digging and your homework and get to know the student. And just because a student has a visual impairment, like it's, it's one visual impairment, it's going to impact them differently. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I know one of the reasons that you and I first started uh, connecting and working together a little bit is because of the sensory aspect. And when we Mm -hmm. think of students with uh, visual impairments and also students who have hearing difficulties, like those are two very important senses that we rely on a lot in life. And so I kind of want to get into the weeds and talking about sensory with you a little bit, and we can start more broad and talk about maybe just the the difficulty with the sense of vision and how that just impacts maybe other sensory systems a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we know as OTs, our sensory system is always working, right? There's always input coming in and output. And when we're working with a student with a visual impairment, research tells us that like they, that student is going to perceive sensory information differently. Like their sensory system is already built and established differently than like a typically developing peer. And so when we, like we want to consider all of those components. And so oftentimes it will be, like a student with a visual impairment will tend to rely more on their hearing and their sense of touch. But at the same time, those same systems can be um, over-responsive or under-responsive. And then depending on if it is a dual like sensory impairment, now what does that look like? And so in any evaluation or assessment, like it's so important to, to do that sensory assessment that evaluation piece um, and really try to understand all of those components and what that looks like. Yeah. And we know that obviously vision and the vestibular systems are so linkly close or so closely linked. Have you made any connections with those two systems in general, either via again, research or your own practice? Yeah. So what, what we tend to see and research will back this up as well. But like typically a student with a visual impairment will prefer increased vestibular input. So oftentimes you will see certain sensory traits that present themselves for these students. And so rocking back and forth to get that increased vestibular input, spinning in circles to get that increased vestibular input, there's just this like crave for vestibular movement. Mm-hmm. And it comes very naturally for these students. You know, they're going to self-regulate the way that works best for them. 
And so you tend to see those common sensory traits for a student with a visual impairment. Gotcha. And then you also kind of mentioned uh, the tactile system, if I recall correctly. Are there some, I guess, patterns that you might see among your students when it comes to the tactile system? Or is it just that they really need to rely on it more? Um, It can be both. So some students can really rely on their tactile system for in- information and input. Mm-hmm. And then it can be that the flip, the flip side of that, where students are like very tactically defensive mm-hmm. because it's a higher input system. Yeah. And so, I mean, I've seen it both ways where um, students can be seeking that tactile input. And then at the same time, when you're asking them to use their hands together or you're asking them to try something new with their hands, um, that defensiveness or that hesitation can be really strong as well. Because what I don't know is how strongly that information is coming into their body, you know, and they can't always tell me, but they can show me. So, you know, we always know that that behavior is communication. And especially for um, the students that have an additional communication need, like, it's very important to just be aware and be a good observer and see, you know, look to see what your students are showing you. Yeah. I mean, I can think of many of my students that when I would work on some tactile based interventions and you try to occlude that vision and, <laughs> you know, they freak out. Like it's, yeah. it, th- these are students who rely on their vision a lot. Yeah. And, you know, granted, I know that the students with low vision, you know, they've over the years, they have been become accustomed to not being able to visually see, but I can still imagine, right? Like you ask them to put their hand on something and they don't know what it is. Yes. Like whether it be slime, sand or whatever, there's going to be some hesitation every single time, not just when you occlude their vision because. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And it's also really important that when we're supporting a student's tactile exploration, that we're using hand under hand technique. And what that allows is so like my hand as the OT would guide the student's hand. And then it's my hand typically interacting with whichever mm-hmm. sensory support or item that we're using. And then it allows the student to take their hand away if they're feeling uncomfortable. And then typically they'll come back and they'll be like, oh, okay, like let's see what's going on. Like, And I'll always ask a student, like, can my hands help your hands? Mm -hmm. And I'll kind of wait to see, like, okay, yep, they're interested. Like, I can give them some additional assistance. So hand under hand, very, very important technique to use with a student with a visual impairment. And the difference being that is if we go to hand over hand, the student has now lost that autonomy. They've lost that sense of control. And so we're now forcing them to do something that they may or may not want to participate in. So that's definitely one of those key aspects for, for any OT, like switching to that hand under hand technique. Yeah. Visual impairment, working with students with visual impairment or not the hand under hand is is so important. And, and kind of what, where my mind was going as you were speaking there was the safety net too, that that offers the student, especially if you're doing some sort of tactile activity, right? Your hand being the first hand to touch the slime, as opposed to their hand being Correct. the first hand to touch the slime. So they feel safe knowing that you're not asking them to touch anything that you yourself are not putting your hand on as well. Your hand's going to be touching whatever it is before their hand might be touching it. So yep. um, a little bit of that safety as yep. well. 
And then just describing like what I'm feeling. So is it slimy? Is it rough? Is it smooth? Like giving them those descriptors because that's also part of early Braille skills Mm -hmm. is learning difference in textures and using those hands together. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to ask you a question about assessments. Um, I know now you are working at a more traditional school-based occupational Mm -hmm. therapy position, even though you had several years with the VI program. So I want to ask you a little bit about the difference in your assessments. How might your assessments be a little bit different when you're working in that VI setting? Or maybe they're exactly the same, but um, what does an assessment look like when you're actually, whether it be a try or whatever it might be, are you using additional or different tools? So really, it's going to be quite the same as it would be for traditional school-based OTs. Um, We want to look at that top-down approach. We want to do that comprehensive occupational profile because we're going to learn a lot of information about the student. Observations for me were the most helpful. Those skilled observations in the classroom, in those different settings. And for me, like I need to see a student in multiple academic settings. So like how they interact in daily living skills versus mm-hmm. how they're going to act in science class and what's it like to be in the lunchroom, which can be very overwhelming <laughs> for right. a lot of students. And then also relying on those teacher and caregiver questionnaires to get some of that additional information. And that also helps me determine like, you know, what what are we seeing? What are the concerns for an evaluation? Making sure that we're not missing a key piece of information. Mm -hmm. And then always for me doing that sensory assessment as well. So that can be the sensory profile too, or the sensory processing measure too. It's just, if we're going to use those standardized assessments, we're now using them in an unstandardized method because Uh to my knowledge, (laughs) there is not yet that like standard sensory assessment for a student with a visual impairment. But it still gives really valuable information, and that's information that I want to be able to share with the team. Yeah. Um, so that when we are looking at programming and accommodations and modifications, we have that information. Yeah. I want to ask you this, because it is very common, right, to use the SP or the SPM. Although that is going to be completed by a teacher and or a parent and or an aide, and it they both include a lot of vision questions. They do. So, you know, I, we also kind of have to be a little mindful, right? And would you cross out vision questions? Would you preface the the completer, whoever is completing that form, like, hey, don't worry about these questions? Or would you just kind of leave it as is and go with it? or? Yeah, it's really interesting because it's going to depend on who's scoring it yeah. or I mean, who's administering it. Uh-huh. And then it also depends on like, does that student have some vision True. or are they completely blind? So like you kind of have to tease out that piece a little bit as well. I think for me, like I always just requested that they fill it out to the best of their ability, yeah. you know, like fill out all those sections. And then when it does get to that vision area, like I'll look to see what's been filled out or not filled out and kind of go from there because, you know, we know that vision is one of those primary senses. So when we're looking at these assessment tools, like it's often very much intertwined with other areas. And so 
for me, and this was just in my practice, like I'm going to get as much information as I can, but I, I don't want to skew someone's interpretation. Like, I don't want to say, don't fill it out or like, don't do it because maybe there's something there that is helpful. Like to me, data is data. Like all data is helpful information. Yeah. Yeah. One way or the other, it's going to help. That is true. I, I was just, I was just thinking about like, if you're giving that to, especially if it's like a parent, I could see them some, there are probably some parents out there that would almost be offended potentially by some of the questions that are asked on there. And that's, I I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that, or if you've ever had a parent address that at all. Like I personally have not had that experience. Um, Uh And I think for a lot of these families, by the time I would see their student, they're so used to filling out these assessments. Like, I mean, they've kind of been doing it for a long time at this point, but it wouldn't be uncommon for, I mean, it would be great to hear a parent question that, you know, like, Hey, by the way, we know my student has a visual impairment. Like, is this really necessary for me to complete? Or, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me that if there are families out there that would question that. And you make a good point. Like, I guess I hadn't really thought about it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you never know. I mean, everyone, everyone reads things and looks into things differently. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was just, I don't know, always think about the quote unquote worst case scenario. Potentially (laughs) I could see someone being offended by questions related to vision when their student is, is completely blind potentially or or whatever it might be. I know on the SPM, I don't think taking out the vision questions would impact other factors. However, with the, the sensory profile, each question gets scored in multiple ways. It's not just right. in relationship to the vision system, but also the school factors and a few other areas. Yeah. So if they're not filling that piece out or if that piece isn't completed, it could impact some of the other areas. Granted, you already talked about how you're no longer using it in a standardized way right. anyways, but but still it could impact some of the other scores. Yeah, it could. So, and yeah, just a note. Yeah. And I know for me, like I tend to prefer the sensory processing measure. Mm-hmm. just because it, it can kind of tease out those areas and not have to rely fully on like if, if the vision piece isn't there or, or things like that, but either is going to give you valuable information and it's going to help the team during those IEP meetings. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will, I'll say this really quickly. I preferred the sensory profile early on in my career because I felt like it was so more, it was much more comprehensive, yes, like true. so many more questions. You could really go back and tease out things. But as my observation skills increased, yes. then I started to prefer the SPM. It gave me enough that I could then use my observations to kind of fill in mm-hmm. some of the blanks. So just kind of my thoughts on that. Yeah. But, good point. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to talk about in relationship to sensory before we kind of move on? Um, I think we've covered a good amount at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a a very good start. And again, you know, this is an introduction to working with students with visual impairments. This is definitely not the end all be all. There's always more to learn. And if this is catching, you know, your ear, if you're listening today and this is catching your ear, set up a, a Google Scholar alert for vision impairment and sensory. And, you know, you might you might be surprised and you might learn some new information every time a new article comes out. So that is one way to keep the learning going. Let's move on to another very important topic in the area of visual impairment, and that's assistive technology. Mm-hmm. What's been your experience with some um, assistive technology while working with students who are blind or visually impaired? Great question. So 
I was very fortunate to work with assistive technology specialists, teachers of the visually impaired that were doing that additional piece as well. And what we know for students with visual impairment is that assistive technology really opens up opportunities for them and especially academically provides tools and supports that they can use in their in their daily lives. And what is also really great about that is, you know, for most students, just, you know, having their smartphone in their pocket, you know, that provides so much assistive technology and opportunities for them. So, you know, I get really used to listening to voiceover, super common, Mm -hmm. like voiceover is on every computer, (laughs) every output device. And then, but also like allowing them access to more of like their curriculum and, you know, using, you know, whether, whether it is that laptop with um, additional supports put on it or that Chromebook, um, assistive technology really is a beneficial piece for a lot of students with a visual impairment. Gotcha. And so what role did you play in assistive technology, were you evaluating? Were you hoping to implement? Were you doing all of the above? What was your role? Yeah. So for me, I definitely fell under the piece of helping to implement. And so going into that assistive technology class, so our students were fortunate to like have that as part of their school day and part mm-hmm. of their schedule. But going in and like helping with a typing program, going in and helping students learn to access their smartphone going in and then helping those students use that as a technology in the classroom setting. And so there was there was a time where I was kind of pushing into the math class and every student would have a different form of assistive technology. And, you know, even a brailler is considered that assistive technology piece to me mm-hmm. because it's another form of output and support. And so like we might have some students on a brailler, some students using their laptops, another student is going to use like both of those combined. And so just really making sure that like once a student grasps the foundational skills of whatever their assistive technology is, and then helping them to implement that across those school environments. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's great that you had the opportunity to help to implement that and the fact that they have their own like specific class dedicated yes. to assistive technology, yeah, which is, I mean, heck, every high schooler could use a class like that, I think. Right? But anyways, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I will say like, it's dependent too on like the school, because I've been talking to other OTs that are in those residential school settings and, you know, not, not every program can have a designated assistive technology yeah. instructor or someone to like have those supports daily for students. And so again, it was just a, a really great team working together. That's awesome. I, I want to ask you about the team and the differences of the team. But first, I want while we're on assistive technology, I want to ask you a question. This might challenge you a little bit. And that is based upon your experiences in that classroom, that environment that is really set up for students with VI and with visual impairments to succeed, what piece of equipment do you feel like could be implemented on every school campus as a piece of universal design for learning 
for students that would help both students, visual impaired students, as well as just all students on campus? Is there something that you feel like that would be so awesome if every single third grade classroom in America had? Right. That is a great question. And that really does like kind of stretch my thinking a bit. And so what I would say for that piece is really helping honor students' requests when they're asking for, like lighting is a really easy one. That's a universal design. Like for a student with a visual impairment, they might need task lighting. They might need the overhead lights to be shut off and then Mm -hmm. just allow for more natural lighting to come through the windows. So that can be like a really easy universal design that is easy to implement, you know, in a school setting. And also just having the opportunity for high contrast colors. So if a student with low vision um, is having having difficulty seeing the items around them, like something simple like a black backdrop with bright colors on top. So whether that's orange or yellow or red. So I think really like an easy universal design would just be access to high contrast colors and then having the lighting opportunities or change in lighting. Yeah. Yeah. See, I mean, they're not, they're not difficult. They're, they're relatively simple things that can be implemented. It does take some training and, you know, giving people that knowledge, but relatively simple things. Yes. And like other simple accommodations that work well for a lot of students is just letting them, you know, wear a ball cap in class and letting them have their hoods up, which now that I've switched into that more traditional school-based setting, like all day long, I'm, I hear teachers say like, oh, take your hoods off, take your hats off, like don't wear those. And then coming from a vision background, I'm like, well, that was just really common. Like it was really common to see a kid go down the hallway with their hood on and their hat on because like that yeah. is an accommodation for them or it can be, it can be one of them. Yeah. So it's just been interesting to hear or like see the differences between the settings. And honestly, like a student is going to know what works best for them. And oftentimes it's just giving them the space to tell you and to self-advocate like, hey, Miss Kelsey, like I came in your room today and can we shut the lights off? And or like this is bothering me today. Like, can we adjust it? And like, yes, Uh we can. (laughs) And that self-advocacy piece is so important for students to learn early and and use. And I think if we're not careful, like kind of comes across as like a complaint almost for some adults. And Mm -hmm. so just being mindful, like a student knows what's best for them and you can help support that. Yeah. Yeah, You know, I I think that goes back to, gosh, I'm forgetting the name. Right. But, but the quote that I think many of us have heard before about education, right. Students do well when they can like, exactly. And then they know what, they know what works for them. Mm -hmm. And so we need to give them that, that space, that ability and that um, awareness to, you know, have that mindset to take opportunities to try things that work well for them and to share that and express that with people that are in their education system. So yeah, love that. All right. You know, we have so much that we can go over and I think we're going to kind of start to wrap up with this question. It's a two part question. And kind of getting at a little bit of the differences between what you might see at a typical school and then, um, or your, your home school versus a school for the blind. And you've mentioned several of these people already, but I kind of want to give you the opportunity to kind of go at it 
with this one question. And we'll start with thinking about a homeschool. Most commonly, what services, what specialists are available to students with visual impairments in a typical district? I know it changes from district to district, but what are some of the more common services you might see at a at a home district? Yeah, so typically and also legally, we want to keep in mind that like students are allowed access to specialists. And so most oftentimes, like you're going to see in in that home district, like they're going to have access to a special education teacher. They're going to have access to an OT, a PT, a speech and language pathologist. And then, you know, if the team determines that it's necessary, you know, then access to a teacher of the visually impaired and orientation and mobility specialist. And and those two specialists know their jobs incredibly well. Like I love working with a teacher of the visually impaired. Uh, it's just like kind of working with another OT colleague. They're just very specialized, like in that visual impairment piece, very knowledgeable. Um, so if you're in a district and, you know, a student has a visual impairment, like be be searching out and connecting with that teacher of the visually impaired, especially as an OT, because oftentimes in a district, that student is going to see that TVI maybe once a week, um, you know, if they're lucky and that TVI is going to be traveling to multiple locations. And then same thing with an orientation and mobility specialist. So not every student with a visual impairment is going to require an orientation and mobility specialist. However, like they're another key member of the team. And so you're going to want to connect with them. You're going to want to talk with them because where you come in as the school-based OT is being able to help kind of like facilitate what the student's learning with those specialists and helping them embed that into their school environment. Mm -hmm. And then what, what could be different is if the student ends up in that residential setting or at a school for the blind is, at least in my experience, like those services for TVI and O&M are occurring at a more frequent rate because they're being housed in the same building. So, gotcha. you know, instead of those specialists traveling to the school or multiple schools and trying to split their time, like, at least in my experience, like the TVIs and the O&M specialists are typically designated like to that school. And so, yeah. and also like students get a chance to work in a group setting more so. I mean, typically I'm going to say there's maybe one or two kids that might have a visual impairment and then, you know, in a district or oh, yeah. like, you know, there'll be split grade levels or different schools. And so again, it allows for that like peer interaction and that peer yeah. support. So really, I mean, those key team members that I would hope would be on everyone's team, you know, would be the TVI and the O&M specialist for sure. Um, and if that's not the case, like it's your job to help advocate for the student as well, because it could just be that your team isn't familiar, or it could be that they don't really work with a lot of students with a visual impairment, you know, in their district. So making mm -hmm. sure, like I will often say to families, like, I would like to help advocate for your student. And like, could we reach out to these specialists? Yeah. And a lot of time, an individual district, an individual LEA won't have those service providers on staff Correct. because it is so infrequent that they have students with visual impairments. And oftentimes, once they 
once they identify a student as having a visual impairment, either A, they might contract with what we call in California, SELPA or the county yes. or the state to bring in some of those mm-hmm. services, or they might go the route of a residential placement. Those are kind of two different options, right? Correct. What about vision therapists? I know that has been something that has come up um, in my own practice mm-hmm. and others have reached out to me asking like, what is the role of a vision therapist? How does OT and vision therapy overlap or not overlap? What's yeah. been your experience? Yeah, that's such a great question because I actually had TVIs and O&M specialists come to me and ask me that exact question. Like, what is, you know, vision therapy versus vision rehab? You know, what's OT's role? What does that look like? And I want to be very respectful to vision therapists and optometrists that have done the education mm-hmm. to provide those services. And because I've worked as a vision therapist previously. Oh. So like for me, it's really important to give credit where credit is due. And yeah. so I will say this, like a for me, a vision therapist is working in conjunction with a most oftentimes a developmental optometrist. They have specific training, specific resources. That intervention is weekly. It's intense. There's home programming. It is very specific. Okay. So vision therapy to me has has its place under under optometry. Okay. Um, I want to be respectful of that. Yeah. That is not to say that an OT cannot support vision rehabilitation. So that's where this kind of changes a little bit. And so I do believe and fully support OT's role in vision rehab and then also working with a student's visual system, especially in the schools, like as it relates to academics. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, we as school-based OTs can support vision. We can support tracking. We can support, you know, vision and eyes teaming together through different um, intervention strategies. And so to me, like vision therapy and vision rehab are very distinct. Yeah. And so is like working in, with visual impairments. So you could say based on IDA's definition that a student qualifies with a visual impairment because they have convergence and sufficiency. You know, that's also a possibility. Yeah. But then like we also have to keep in mind the place of vision impairment as it relates to low vision and blindness. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you for thank you for explaining that a little bit cuz it's something that that comes up in IEPs more frequently, it seems like, yeah. especially if you're in more urban, suburban areas, I think. Yeah. And I've never had a bad experience with a vision therapist. I just honestly <laughs> didn't know what their role was necessarily compared to what my role was. And I know I was doing a lot more in the classroom type of things, a lot of accommodations. Correct. And it seemed like they were doing a lot more pull out working on like really understanding the eye movements. And I don't know that there was as much emphasis on education that maybe I was putting on like the education. It seemed like they were doing a lot more exercises as opposed to that would help in all aspects, not just education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Okay. All righty. Well, before 
we wrap up here, I want to give you the opportunity to share just maybe one tip for occupational therapy practitioners that let's just let's just kind of say maybe they recently had a student that was placed on their caseload or they evaluated mm-hmm. a student in, in vision impairment. Just the overarching advice for for occupational therapy practitioners out there. Yeah, I mean, I this I is broad. It, it is broad, but I will say like as school-based OTs, like you have the skill set, you have the training, you have the knowledge. It can be intimidating at first, but I really want to empower you to know that you have the skill set. You know, you you are keen observers. You are really great at the task analysis. You know how to provide that just right challenge for students. So you have the ability. And then when you have questions, like reach out to your team members, like reach out to the teachers of the visually impaired, reach out to your orientation and mobility specialists. And I mean, feel free to reach out to me. I'm I'm happy to help. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, thank you so much, Kelsey, for coming on and sharing so much information related to uh, supporting students with visual impairments as an occupational therapy practitioner. It's been very helpful. I know a lot of us uh, will never have the opportunity to work in a school for the visually impaired, but we never know when we might come across a student with visual impairment on their IEP in our local district. And so it's always helpful. We don't need to know everything, but we need to know enough to be dangerous in an IEP a little bit and to uh, yes. provide some services. So thank you so much. We really appreciate your time and look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you so much. And that's going to wrap up episode number 142. Thank you so much for tuning in to this very uh, very special episode. It's not often that we get to talk about working with students with low vision, but I know there's several of you that work in schools for for those who are visually impaired or blind. And even if you don't, there's a very high likelihood that you will have one, two, or maybe a handful of students with visual impairments at your public schools. So I really hope this helps you. And if you are looking for all the resources that Kelsey did mention today, be sure to head on over to otschoolhouse.com slash episode 142 to find all of those resources and to potentially even connect with Kelsey. Kelsey is such a wonderful person as both a friend as well as an occupational therapy practitioner. And I'm so happy she was able to come on and share this knowledge with everyone today. And again, she does have a course now on the OT Schoolhouse Collaborative Network, and you can go learn more about that over at otschoolhouse.com slash collab. As I said earlier, we would love for you to be our newest member inside the OT Schoolhouse Collaborative. So thanks again for listening, and I hope to see you in the OT Schoolhouse Collaborative. Until next time, bye. Thank you for listening to the OT Schoolhouse Podcast. For more ways to help you and your students succeed right now, head on over to otschoolhouse.com. Until next time, class is dismissed.